Hello, and welcome to Actively Speaking. I'm your host, Steve Blyberg. Join us each episode as we discuss current issues concerning capital markets and portfolio management from the perspective of an active manager. Welcome to another episode of Actively Speaking. And uh, today we're going to talk about antitrust. Now, that may seem like a, a dry topic, but uh, I really think it's not if you frame it uh, in, in terms that, that we're going to be talking about today, which is antitrust really is all about what is fair competition in the marketplace and uh, how do you define it? How do you measure it? And different people have had different opinions about that uh, over the years. And right now we're at an interesting point in time because we have uh, in the last year or so a, a new chairman of the Federal Trade Commission, which is one of the two government bodies that gets involved in antitrust, the other one being, of course, the Department of Justice. Uh, and there's also now a majority in, in, just in the last few weeks uh, with the swearing in of a new, there, there are five commissioners on the FTC. So now we have a, a Democratic majority of three to two. Um, so it seems like a, a good time to talk about what's potential changes we might be seeing coming down the road in antitrust enforcement. And to do that, I'm joined once again by Kevin Hebner, Epic's global strategist. So thanks for coming on again, Kevin. Oh, thank you, Steve. So why don't we start off, uh, give me a little historical background on sort of how people have traditionally thought about this question of what is fair competition. That, that, that's, I think everybody agrees, you know, if you polled on this question, you get a lot of people saying, sure, I, I want the markets to be fair, but uh, it's not as simple as it sounds defining what fair means. And, you know, is it, is it all about price? Is it, are there other things that even if the price is falling, can, can a, can a merger still be a bad thing for consumers if we use other metrics? So how did, uh, you know, when, when antitrust first came along in the United States, which is over a hundred years ago, what did people think? And then take us you know, briefly through how that has evolved over time. Yes. The, the notion of fairness in markets, you know, this goes back a, an awful long time. Um, in uh, Athenian Greece, so a couple of millennia ago, um, the market was called uh, an agora. And there was a, a pithy saying at, the, at that time that uh, the definition of agora was a place marked off for the purpose of cheating. And so people were well aware, aware that there were um, incentives to behave badly. And this is also key to the thinking of Adam Smith. And it's a, a key part of the wealth of nations, uh, which has really been the consensus among economics, the, the key points that Adam Smith highlighted that business people normally will try to, if they're left on their own, will try to form monopolies, and, and that seems, you know, just um, their incentives. And the policy needs to protect the consumer and protect the consumer rather than protect the incumbent businesses. Um, and that if you have uh, a pro-market, pro-competition, it encourages innovation. It's not necessarily pro-big business, pro-incumbent business, uh, but ultimately, that is what's better for the nation that Adam Smith is focusing, um, and certainly for for the consumer. And it was it was very innovative at the time when Adam Smith wrote it, uh, 1776, so you know roughly 250 years ago. But but actually, that that does remain the the root of the way economists still think about it. Now, this came to the fore um, in the U.S. Say you know just over 100 years ago, and at that time we had the big trusts, so the big business conglomerates, um, dominating industries uh, like steel, oil, railways. The most famous trust is probably Standard Oil. 
which had 90% of the market, and, and um, certainly the way they managed to get 90% of the market, it was an efficient company. Oil prices were going down, but extremely <laughs> aggressive behavior. Uh, and, and I think and under any definition, um, behavior that uh, a pro-market, pro-innovation uh, government would not want to be encouraged. And so with that, we had two big pieces of, of legislation around that time. And, and the big test case was Standard Oil. And that, that case was 1911, just around the time that um, the Model Ts were rolling off the assembly lines and we were entering the, the age of the auto. And, and so uh, I think that's, you already um, mentioned now, one of the issues that comes up apart from just price, and that's innovation. And so that already, I think, has sort of a long history as being a relevant metric for judging you know, fair competition. Um, talk about that, about how innovation has been seen as a, a basis for antitrust enforcement, particularly in recent years with things like, you know, Microsoft. Yeah. So even with the big case with Standard Oil, yeah, at that time, you know, when the case was brought, uh, 1911, the key product wasn't the sort of oil we get at gas stations now. It was kerosene. And this did change a lot with the age of the auto. Um, but at that time, you had Standard Oil, 90% of the market. They had no interest in spending on innovation. They had the market wrapped up. They didn't have to do it. But once Standard Oil was broken up into lots of different pieces, then the individual companies did have uh, lots of incentives to compete and innovate. And, and with that, we did get uh, thermal cracking, which was a, a much superior um, product for automobiles from Model Ts relative to kerosene. And then later on, you got catalytic cracking and so on. So even back then, with a product you could think is as boring as um, oil, uh, innovation was, was very important. Then as antitrust evolved through cases like uh, DuPont, AT&T, up to Microsoft, uh, innovation was important. But you'd get a company that had one product that was very good. It gained a lot of market share. But then it ended, entered into a lot of anti-competitive behavior, exclusionary deals, uh, acquisitions whose intention was to stifle competition um, to cement and extend um, their market dominance. And as that's, you know, that's <laughs> certainly that describes a lot of what Standard Oil did, but also through DuPont, AT&T, Microsoft, and then modern day um, with the, the big tech companies, which are the focus is on now, uh, whether it's Google, Facebook, Apple, or Amazon, um, these features continue to be at, at the core of the discussion. Okay, so so clearly price and innovation are two ways we have historically measured the impact of, of you know mergers uh, and antitrust enforcement. Uh, now let's let's bring in uh, Louis Brandeis, the Supreme Court Justice in the first part of the 20th century, because his name is going to become important as we bring the discussion up to the present day. Uh, he had a view, if I'm if I'm remembering this correctly, or from what you've told me, uh, about the sort of evils of bigness, just per se, you know, on 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 its own. That that um, you know, bigness was going to have negative consequences, not just on consumers directly in terms of price or innovation, but just uh, on in terms of the um, our democratic society. That he thought it was it was bad for that. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, so he, he's extremely important, I, I think, broadly as a justice, but certainly in his role in antitrust. He was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1916, so just as World War I was getting going. 
And, and I think it's important to remember, you know, the time period, you know, when, when he was studying law and acting as a judge and um, became, you know, was appointed to the Supreme Court. Uh, at that time, he did have the big trusts and they're engaging in lots of anti-competitive behavior, uh, anti-innovation. Um, you also had the labor movement was starting to grow. Um, the Soviet Union was formed. People were concerned about communism. Uh, and, you, and you had even more extreme wealth inequality than you do now. At that time, say the top 10% of Americans own 90% of wealth. The, the current number is about 70%. So we, we've improved a lot since that day. So he, in his view, monopolies were inherently harmful to consumers, to innovation, but he also thought they were harmful to workers. And so he was concerned about the impact of the big trust, the big monopolies on on wages um, and the labor share uh, relative to the profit share of the economy. Um, and so that's something which was important to him. Uh, and it was important, I think, in terms of how antitrust um, cases were brought forward really until the um, the 60s and, and maybe early 70s when the Chicago School that became dominant. Okay. And what was – tell me about their uh, way of thinking about antitrust. And, and so you know, in many ways this reflects – you know, there was a perception um, in the United States and the U.K. and other places – that there, you know, there had been government overreach in many areas leading up to the the 60s and 70s, and and President Reagan had, you know, his um, famous nine most dangerous words in the English language. I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. So there's perception by, and this is then focused on the Chicago School, um, so University of Chicago, uh, which now actually has a very different view on antitrust, but their view at that time was when the government gets involved, pretty much government gets involved in anything, so not specifically about uh, antitrust, but it would have been monetary policy, fiscal policy, uh, regulation, any area of the economy, uh, that they do more harm than good. And so what they did is they defined um, the harms from antitrust very, very narrowly. That is, a merger is only deemed anti-competitive when it raises the prices of goods above a competitive level. I have really no idea how you'd ever have a merger that would be deemed to be to violate um, the antitrust statutes given a really narrow definition like that. But that was part of their agenda. And with that, um, they gutted the FTC and the DOJ. Their staffs went down by about 50 percent. But they really wanted to have a, a much less active government and certainly much less active uh, antitrust actions, either from um, the DOJ or for, for the FTC going forward. And, and ultimately, they thought markets work best when they're unshackled. If you do get a company that gets too big, markets are going to work it out. New incumbents will come in, they'll challenge them, they'll innovate, and then the monopolists will lose their power. And overall, government regulations, government involvement, they just make things worse. So that was their view. And so in the decades after that, um, in the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s, uh, we saw very few antitrust cases filed um, either by the DOJ or the FTC. And really the, the need or the low point in that was from uh, around when Reagan was you know, first became president, 81, until the, the early 90s. Um, so very few cases, very little antitrust. And, and what we have seen as a consequence of that is in many sectors of the U.S. economy, we have seen big increases in um, sector concentration, 
this partly reflects, you know, this view on antitrust, but also reflects the nature of the increasingly digital economy and the economies of scale and network effects that go along with that. Um, but with that, this increasingly concentrated economy, and, and this is going on in many different sectors, um, um, you know, in the U.S. And, and other places as well. But with that, you know, you do get uh, higher prices, less innovation, um, less competition, and ultimately not in the best interest of consumers, which going back to Adam Smith should be the, the key focal point for this type of policy. Well, I mean, and did globalization play some role in that too? You know, in the past, it was, if you were a large company in the U.S., the idea was you were competing against other possibly large companies in the U.S. And so if you combined that, that that was potentially anti-competitive. But if, if in fact, now you are competing against large companies in Europe and in Asia, that uh, maybe it's not so bad if the, you know, if two large U.S. companies tie up to enable them to compete better against foreign companies. Was that, was that part of what was going on? I, I think it's part, but I think some of this is, is a bit too clever. And this is something the tech companies are, are trying to use now because there, there are a number of, pieces of the legislation, several of which have cleared committee and could go to the Senate floor at any time. And they're trying to say, well, you know, if, if you um, put antitrust shackles on us, then what you're really doing is you're helping the Chinese and you're really hurting American, American companies. Um, and, and I think that's a, it's really hard to think, you know, which Chinese company is directly competing with Apple or Google or uh, Amazon, you know, Facebook, maybe with TikTok. But it strikes me, and, and certainly right now, they're being very active in, in lobbying, lobbying senators directly um, and other types of policymakers to make sure these two pieces of legislation, the ones that are most likely to go forward, don't. So I think there is a bit of globalization in there in, in terms of um, the nature of concentration. But I think the um, protestations of uh, big tech, I, I think it's, it's a little bit too clever uh, and I think they're trying to use patriotism uh, as a lever here where it, it strikes it's, it's not a really strong argument. It may be that in semiconductors, for example, with Intel, maybe you can make the argument because clearly semiconductors um, are key to national security. It's not as clear to me that, you know, Google search engine or the Amazon marketplace is as key to national security. Right. Okay. So we've gone through a period, really, I mean, you know, you mentioned the, the peak of it kind of was in the 80s and early 90s, but, you know, even in the last 15, 20 years, there, there really has not been a lot of antitrust uh, cases brought or, or too many, you know, the number of mergers that have been blocked is extremely low, if, if not zero in some areas. And so we have had much greater concentration within industries but now it seems like, you know, perhaps that's going to change. We've got at least people in government now who do want to change that. So uh, talk a bit about the the new or, or whatever, middle of last year, I guess about a year ago now, new head of the FTC and this whole school of, quote, neo-Brandesian antitrust thought. What is that all about? Yeah, so I think, you know, over, you know, say the last 25 years, you know, the, the big four tech companies, Collectively, they purchased more than 550 companies. It's a starting approach, 600 companies. Um, the antitrust agencies, the FTC and the, the DOJ, uh, they haven't blocked a single acquisition. <laughs> I think that's raised a lot of eyebrows and got a lot of attention. And certainly the, the mistrust of tech, um, partially because of issues, for example, with Twitter and the, the role that Twitter has played 
um, in, in the political arena, you know, some forms of censorship and, and sometimes promoting disinformation through COVID and things. So there's a lot of concern, suspicion, distrust of tech. And so with that, you know, the, the winds have changed and, and some of the high profile neo-Brandesians uh, have been appointed to, to very important positions. Um, Lena Khan, she's now the FTC chair. And it's interesting, her appointment, so with FTC, you know, there's, there's five commissioners. They get nominated by the president, but they, they're confirmed by the Senate. And so she had um, you know, a pretty strong majority of senators supporting her. And partly that is because people are, are pretty pretty big fans of the academic work that she's done, specifically um, criticizing Amazon. Um, in the White House, there's Tim Wu, who may be the preeminent neo-Brandesian. He's written some excellent books. One's called The Curse of Bigness. Um, you know, taking off from a phrase that Louis Brandeis used a lot. So he's in the White House heading up competition policy. And then at the DOJ, um, Jonathan Katner, you know, he's now Assistant uh, Attorney General in charge of the Antitrust Division um, at the DOJ. And he, he's a prominent um, tech critic. So now they've come into pretty important positions. And to, to a large extent, they're they're pushing forward a pretty traditional view of antitrust, something that Adam Smith and the vast majority of economists would feel comfortable with. But sometimes they bring up, you know, one issue, well, I guess really two issues that are, are pushing the edge on, you know, what is a, a conventional view. Uh, one is, and this, this follows on from Louis Brandeis, is that sometimes they think that certain mergers could lead to lower wages increased income inequality, and that's something they should take into account. Um, very few economists would support that view, but that's something which um, the FTC chair, Lena Khan, has, has mentioned explicitly. Um, the second thing they've been talking about is privacy, that sometimes with privacies, uh, we get excessive aggregation of data, a reduction in privacy protections, and this is something which should, should be taken into account. Um, so I think the first one, I don't think there's very much support for it. There's nothing in the legislation really which will allow them to go in that direction. The second point about privacy is more interesting. And, and you mentioned that last month we had um, the third Democratic uh, FCC commissioner appointed. Uh, he's a privacy specialist. He's, he's been a Georgetown law, um, Alvaro Vidalia. And so he's very much focused on corporate civilians, the accumulation of data, um, different types of privacy issues. And one of the pieces of legislation going, you know, like that could go to the floor, it's, it's out of Senate. In fact, it, it got through Senate with a vote of 20 to 2. So it has pretty strong support. But um, it's not clear if that will go forward. But I think, you know, in the years, maybe the terms going forward, we will be hearing more about privacy. But a world in which cons judges are inherently conservative, but precedent-driven, um, I think it's unlikely that these two sort of novel antitrust theories, either focused on lower wages, income inequality, or on privacy, are, are going to be major factors in uh, antitrust decisions, at least for the next few years. Well, even if, if judges, if they can't persuade judges to go along because of lack of precedent, um, I assume there's, there's likely to be, you know, sort of a chilling effect that uh, some mergers that we might have seen take place in an, in an environment where companies knew that the people at the helm of the FTC or the DOJ antitrust division were, were not likely to challenge them. 
Uh, now they know that, it, you know, they might be challenged, even if they might prevail in the end. Do you, do you think that will have a kind of chilling effect on, on M&A activity? Yeah, so in, in antitrust circles, this is called the, the placement at the elbow theory of antitrust enforcement. So the, the fact you have a, a law enforcement officer, you know, right, you know, by your side, you know, looking over what you're doing. And, and certainly with even previous cases that were unsuccessful, for example, the suits against IBM or Microsoft, it's pretty clear that they had a, a dramatic effect on behavior. And it's a, it's a bit like if you're going down the highway and everyone's going 10 miles over the limit, and then someone sees a, a, a police car on the side of the road, people slow down to a couple miles below the speed limit, even, even if the police car is just sitting there and isn't going down and chasing anybody. So this policeman at the elbow theory, uh, I think it's probably pretty important because, you know, certainly for big tech firms, they all know they're under the microscope and, and they have to be careful. Certainly a lot of the uh, acquisitions over the last 25 years uh, in the current environment definitely would not be approved. Um, and that would, that would include uh, Facebook's acquisitions of uh, Instagram, you know, probably the, the most high profile, but also WhatsApp and so forth. Um, so yes, I, I do think that uh, at least the, the tech part of antitrust enforcement um, just the fact that we do have a lot more discussion that this is high profile uh, in the White House and, um, you know, in the enforcement agencies, the FTC and DOJ, I, I do think we're see fewer acquisitions that could be challenged. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Kevin. This has been a, a really interesting discussion. I know people, uh, they, when, when antitrust comes up in discussions, people, I think, do tend to think of it mostly in this sort of partisan lens of, uh, you know, like uh, the Democrats are against this or the Republicans are against that. But I, I think it really is much more useful to think about it in, in the ter- terms we've been talking about, which is how do you define fair competition? And, uh, you know, reasonable people can disagree on that. You know, what are the right metrics? Is it price? Is it innovation? Is it, uh, you know, income inequalities? You know, you can make a case for any of these things being perfectly plausible metrics for, uh, for antitrust enforcement. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the in the next couple of years. So thanks very much, Kevin, for joining me. Oh, thanks very much, Steve. And uh, we'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks very much. Remember to subscribe to Actively Speaking on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find all of our previous episodes and additional content on our website, www.eipny.com. The information contained in this podcast is distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but not guaranteed. The information is accurate as of the date submitted, but is subject to change. Any performance information referenced represents past performance and is not indicative of future returns. Any projections, targets, or estimates in this presentation are forward-looking statements and are based on EPIC's research, analysis, and assumptions made by EPIC. There can be no assurances that such projections, targets, or estimates will occur, and the actual results may be materially different. Other events which were not taken into account in formulating such projections, targets, or estimates may occur and may significantly affect the returns or performance of any accounts and or funds managed by EPIC. 
To the extent this podcast contains information about specific companies or securities, including whether they are profitable or not, they are being provided as a means of illustrating our investment thesis. Each security discussed has been selected solely for this purpose and has not been selected on the basis of performance or any performance-related criteria. Past references to specific companies or securities are not a complete list of securities selected for clients, and not all securities selected for clients in the past year were profitable. The securities discussed herein do not represent an entire portfolio and, in the aggregate, may only represent a small percentage of a client's holdings. Clients' portfolios are actively managed, and securities discussed in this podcast may or may not be held in such portfolios at any given time.